Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast Season 6 with your host, Dan the Fitness Man. Thank you for tuning in. We are excited to have you. This is the podcast that is dedicated to hard work, disciplined decisions, and year-round training in the pursuit of the best possible version of ourselves. We leverage elk hunting to create a pathway. We understand that time is finite and we cannot squander a second. We must be leaders at our home. We understand that faith is our number one priority. Then family, then fitness, then health, then wealth. Our year-round disciplined decisions help us leave a legacy for our family to follow. You will leave here motivated, inspired, and educated. We bring on a wide variety of guests subject matter experts so that you can tune in get what you need to get and continue on your journey we are blessed to call ourselves elk hunters season six here we go welcome to the oak shade podcast with me dan the fitness man what is good we have an awesome listen today i'm sitting down with brent hahn owner, founder of Valkyrie Archery. A couple months back, I met him at the Western Hunt Expo. We had a great elk conversation. He ended up sending me, I think, six arrows that he built for me. They came in at 460 with his Valkyrie system. They were four millimeter arrows, and I got to test them shooting. We made a YouTube video about it. Check that out. Uh, And some of this podcast is going to be on YouTube. I did put a little snippet, so if you want to check that out, you can see some of the stuff he's talking about when we're visually talking about his system and he's showing. Check out the YouTube version, but Brent's a great dude and a serious, legitimate elk hunter. That's why we have him on. Let's dive in deeper with his penetration system. This is Brent and you're listening to the Elk Shape Podcast. Guys, welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. We are sitting down with Brent from Valkyrie. Brent, you're uh, you're over in Oregon, correct? <laughs> All right, take two. Guys, welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast. Today, 
We are sitting down with Brent from Valkyrie. Brent, you're based in Oregon, correct? Yeah, Salem, Oregon. Lucky you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe so. We're pretty far from Portland, but we're like a mini Portland down here. But uh, yeah, we're, got, we're surrounded by a bunch of, you know, there's quite a few animals, rough seasons, but, and quite a few good bow hunters have come from the Willamette Valley through here. So that's a fact. And, uh, in fact, I think Oregon's got like a legendary pedigree of bow hunters. And I can you tell know. you why, <laughs> because it's so freaking hard to get one here on public ground. Anyone that consistently gets a good, a decent elk or deer in Oregon is that's how you learn. I tell even when guys are going to go to other States like Wyoming and Montana, I'm like, you guys are going to love it. I said, there's way more animals. They're, you know, they're way more callable. There's well, most of the time there's less people. And when guys take everything they learn from here and go out there, every, I mean, every guy I know if that are successful here, just have a blast out, you know, towards the, the Montana and Wyoming and Colorado and stuff like that. What year did you start um, hunting elk? Oh, I don't, well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> so it's about, uh, 16 is when I started bow hunting elk and deer. So on the coast range in Oregon, public land, um, went through many years unsuccessful. And then I started, even my dad told me, you're hunting with the wrong guys. You got to hunt with, you know, why do you hunt with those guys? <laughs> and so I started hunting by myself and then, um, started getting stuff, but that, you know, that was quite a few years ago. I say the last 20 years have been pretty, pretty successful, but, um, and then the first time I went, and I'd only hunted Oregon. And then the first time I hunted out of state, I just, that was back when the hunt and fool was brand new. And it used to be that little yellow flyer that you'd get in the mail. And uh, I was like, you know, what the heck? I'll just put in for some stuff. And the very first year I drew, it was in 2000, I drew a mountain goat tag in Montana. And I didn't even realize it. I got a letter in the mail from Montana. I'm like, what the heck's this? And it was a goat tag. And I was like, oh, I drew it. I must, I must have put in for that. I mean, total, totally oblivious. That was my first year of putting in anywhere. And um, and I, it was all on my own. I mean, all in fact, everything that we that we're gonna talk about with the Valkyrie Archery stuff is I studied everything back in those days. Like every I had every archery magazine subscriptions, you know, and I'd read as soon as I get them, I'd read them cover to cover, trying to learn more about the stuff because the people, you know, when I first grew up you know, bow hunting, I was hunting with a bunch of guys that were like a lot of guys that are stuck in it today that just repeat what someone else said. I say it all the time. Like most guys just take whatever the local guy tells them and, and runs with it. And that lasts for generations. And uh, I was kind of frustrated with the, you know, not really, you know, I started looking at things more analytically and trying to figure out what I needed to do to be a better hunter. And after years of, you know, finally listening to my dad, went out on my own and started. I didn't know anyone. I had, I knew no one that put in for hunts anywhere in 2000. I just decided to do it because I wanted, you know, to try some different stuff. And uh, after that goat hunt, which I didn't get one, I shot one, but it was, anyway, it was a long, that's a long story, which is pretty cool. But some mountain lions grabbed it, took it into the brush, and I never found it. But um after that hunt, it was in the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana, and it was the most extreme, I call it extreme bow hunting experience. I was like, oh, my God, I got to put it everywhere. This was like the greatest hunt of my life. You know, was, there's was only two tags in there. There's no one else around. There's goats, you know, but it's, it's dangerous and dicey. And we had uh, 
I mean, I'm hunting in the cliffs and stuff. And then it was in that, in between that freeze and thaw where the springs would freeze up. And then in the daytime, they thaw and these huge monstrous chunks of ice would just fall off the cliffs and stuff and land. And you just hear this kaboom. And it was, it was pretty, it was intense. And you had to get out of there before it froze up or you couldn't get out because you had to always climb up through these little spring cracks and stuff. And it was ever, ever since then I put in, I, uh, all the Western states and like all the hunts, I mean, deer, elk, antelope, uh, sheep, goat, everything. And uh, it's funny because I used to the hunt fool back then, but I didn't know anything about it. I mean, I just read what they said. Okay. I'll put in for that. Then every year I draw something, but it turned into be, I've changed since then because after years and years of spending all that money, and then every time you draw a new tag, I did, I had to do all the research back then it was paper maps and stuff and calling biologists and all that. And it was just a huge amount of stress. Cause then back then I had a construction business. And so I was, you know, running that and trying to do all this research and you still have to shoot your bow and work out. <laughs> and I'm like, and then all the, and every year it was new it was a new unit. And then my wife, even after a couple of years of these once in a lifetime tags, She's like, I thought those were once in a lifetime. I'm like, well, I put in like every single place and I ended up getting like one or two a year. It was pretty cool. In fact, one year I had to eat, uh, I threw a late beer tag in Nevada and I never went because, and it was in a really good spot that's really coveted. And uh, I had this Boone and Crockett blacktail buck I was after here in Oregon. And I'm like, I don't know that. They're like, but that's like the best. I'm like, I know, but I know where there's a Booner Blacktail, like a mile from my house. I got to go for him. Yeah, I ended up getting him. But um, nice. It was nice, but I sacrificed that. I haven't drawn that thing, the Nevada tag since. Yeah. Even, even in Wyoming, when I was first putting in, things were a lot. Things have changed so rapidly with the internet and stuff, and the amount of hunters putting in for things. I um, because I used to get, we used to hunt the breaks every. I did, not we, every year. You know, I found a spot in the breaks I liked, and you could just, you had to put in, but it was automatic. And then um, a couple of years I drew that, and I drew a really good unit in Wyoming the first year I put in. And didn't, wasn't successful, but it was a phenomenal hunt. I mean, it was, there was elk ever there, bugle, and you could call them in. I drew that three years in a row. Now it takes like 16 points. And I didn't even go the next two years because I had other hunts to draw. And I'm like, well, I'll just get it again. And then all of a sudden the point creep started in and it's almost unhuntable now. And back, even back then it was, we're talking about hunting, but back then you, a good, if I did, because I did all my own research, didn't tell anyone, I just pick and choose, you know, I learned stuff. It was, you had to be, couldn't tell anybody anything back then, even back then. And a good spot would last when I, about in 2000, 2000, early 2000s. If you were lucky, it would last about five years. Then after about, then the internet started going and chat rooms and stuff. And then it started being two years because you can find honey holes. You can still find them today, but they don't last. Like if you find a honey hole one year, next year, it's probably gone because somebody went in there and blew it up. And uh, one of the big things I tell guys all the time, even years ago, when uh, Cam Haynes came out with his first book about bicycling behind the gates and stuff, I was like, why would you tell people that? <laughs> Cause we were already doing it up here. You guys, you, they're a little South of us, but I'm like, and then, but even after what, I mean, you'd never, I, even when I was riding my bike in there, you'd only you'd see maybe a couple guys. And then, you know, 
at you know a couple hours before dark you could see the the are the camo army coming up <laughs> through the stuff every night you know we were already back in there. but um but it's been t- it's really tough now for guys putting in and i kind of changed my strategy i only put in for areas that i've been to several times because my time is limited um, now i used to hunt all the time like i mean late july all fall through the winter and i'd end up then i finally figured out a little bit of arizona so i was down in there in january and then um and then i got into spring bear and it's funny because when i first got married i told my wife before we got married i said that's back when i used to steelhead fish a lot i said in the winter i'm steelhead fishing and in the fall i'm bow hunting that's just happening that's going you know you have to realize that will happen and she's she's like I'm, i'm okay with that then after about 10 years of marriage She's like, I thought you said that bow hunting was in the fall. I'm like, yeah, but I get, I figured out that every year when I was just hunting the fall, I mean, I tried to get dialed in as much as I could at the beginning, but then I wasn't really dialed until the end of season. Like I was dialed in, like into with everything. All my gear was perfect. And so that's when I started deciding I need to find another hunt to keep this going. So that, cause I mean, and I was tell, talking to a guy the other day, I was so set up back then that if a guy called me and says, Hey, we're going to Kodiak tomorrow. Can you go? And we're leaving tonight. I'd be, yeah, I'm, I'm re- take me about a half an hour just to adjust my clothing and I'm gone. And I was talking, I was like, really? And I'm like, dude, yeah, I was set up back then. When back then I used to do the research. It's funny because I researched everything, even the backpack gear and all that stuff. Cause most of the stuff I do is probably like you. It's always backpack where horses and stuff really can't get to. And, um, so I researched that, but it's like, I did the same thing with steelhead fishing because there wasn't a ton of info out there, even for bow hunting and bow hunting in the West and hunting backpacking. So I looked to backpackers for backpacking advice and what they use to backpack, especially the long, the trekkers and stuff that go long range. And uh, from boots to, I was using two trekking poles back in 2004 because I just happened to be an REI back then. And my knees, I hurt on that mountain goat I was telling you about. I was in good shape, but I didn't train in the mountains. I was actually doing vending machines back then. And uh, I would hike in there where I was hunting. It'd be anywhere from two to five miles. And every evening, I'd run out downhill and jog out back to the truck and stay in a hotel so I could shower and keep my scent clean and all that stuff. And But the downhill hurt my knees really bad because I wasn't used to it. And then but I just powered through it. I'm like, I don't care if it hurts. We're just going to go. And uh, in fact, it got so bad one time, I actually cut a trekking pole out of a branch just so I could, when I was running, I could, you know, just stay balanced when I was running out. Then I saw the trekking poles at REI. And, it's, and so I couldn't walk. I could barely walk for a month after that hunt. And so I'm like, oh, I got to train my knees better. And so I bought a bike and all that stuff. But my knees hurt to this day on downhill. Crush it. I can go uphill like crazy, downhill, it's rough. <laughs> so, um, but I tried the trekking poles back then. And the first year I took him out to the Montana, I met this old timer. He was a guide and his clients had bailed on him. And then he went to where he, anyway, they're from the Midwest and stuff. And after about three days, they couldn't hang with this old dude. But he's, and so I ran into him and everywhere I went, I knew this area really well. And even I'd be like five miles over this way or five miles over that way. I'd see the same boot tracks like he'd already been there. 
And I met, I ran into him on the trail and I'm like, can I mind if I look at your boots? He's like, what do you mean? I go, let me see your tread. And he had those old Cabela's lightweight hunting boots. I knew what they were. And he's, he shows me his tread. I'm like, that's you. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, you've been like to every freaking good spot around here. <laughs> like I got your boot track, like 10 miles apart in this whole area. And he's like, yeah, I've been guiding these guys and they, they, for the last few days and they, you know, couldn't there, I think they're from Chicago or something. And they just left and he had had the elk. He got them pinned in this spot where they could only go one way through this little pass. And, uh, and he went there the next day and shot this bull. He was like two miles from the nearest spot. You can get a truck. And I'm like, well, let me help you pack it out. And he's like, well, you don't have to. And I'm like, he's like 65, but he was in great shape. And, uh, I'm like, Oh, let me help you. And I had my trekking poles. And so I got, we cut them up, got them on the, packs and and i started with those trekking poles i was blown away with two trekking poles this is in 2000 i been in 2005 and i was like and i told that old timer i'm like hey you got to try these trekking poles because after about a mile i i don't feel a thing like i'm like i'm all you know you're not wiggling around you're not off balance i'm just going my knees nothing hurts i'm like I'm like, come on, you just got to try them. I go, but these things are amazing. <laughs> I'm like, this, nothing hurts. I mean, this is, this is crazy. And he's like, finally he does. He's like, all right, if you're going to keep hammering me about it, I'll try them. <laughs> he tried it. He tried it for about a quarter mile. He goes, yeah, those are pretty good. Here you go. And I'm like, you can take them the rest of the way. And he's like, no, 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 I'm fine. And I'm like, all right. But, um, but that was pretty cool. Then after a few years after that, then guys started using one. Remember uh, Brian, yeah, the guy that does Canada stuff too on the international. Can't remember his name, but he was talking about using one. And then I'm like, shoot, I've been doing, but the two was fantastic. And I take them with me almost everywhere. But um, just the carbon ones, they weigh one pound for the pair. And they're just, for me, they're freaking lifesavers for packing meat. Even when I pack into to hunts, I use them for the uphill strap bow and everything on the pack and just get you in there a lot easier, saving energy and stuff. So. Yeah, I'm a huge trekking pole fan. Um, just sustainability. I do a lot of elk benders, back-to-back-to-back hunts, and it just wears you down. I have a trekking pole shootout I'm about to film. I uh, I ordered Camo Fires, like cheap branded one, which I've heard actually is like one of the most bulletproof trekking poles on the market. Uh, a Black Ovis Creststone, which I've ran those before. They break into three, which is super nice for packability. Um, I got some sissy sticks and then three or four different leckies and the, I, that's a lot of trekking poles to go through, but I'm doing like a huge, like test video and trying to figure out my favorite. And, um, I, I do know this. The originals, the, the original REIs they had, the original carbon REIs. They're the, I still have them. They're the ones, mm-hmm. they're my go-to. Those are the ones I hunt with. I don't, I don't, uh, when I hike off season and stuff with the. I haven't done it for a few years, but anyway, I used to do the hundred pound pack like twice a week on a thing, but I bought another, a newer set, but they're heavier and not a, the, the originals. And I haven't found a pair of carbon trekking poles that weigh one pound that can do that. That's what I tell guys. They weigh, these things weigh a pound. How come, why'd they quit making them? <laughs> Cause everything yeah. else weighs more. And they, I mean, I've caught them in rocks and almost broken them, but no, I haven't. Yeah. And, uh, it's like, I don't, but you know the newer, but they're totally what even if they're a pound and a half or one point what one point two, I totally worth it. You know, it's funny you're talking about how jumping into the draw game has changed so much, 
and it has. Um, I've drawn once in a lifetime mountain goat, uh, moose. Uh, never drawn a sheep tag, but I've drawn some really good elk tags and some great mule deer tags. And when I got in the game, or you know, probably early two thousands, not too far from you, you know, I had I had my sights brent on hunting the northwest corner of Colorado, um, maybe hunting you know, limited entry elk in Utah a couple, you know, a couple of times. No, it's, it's crazy what point creep has done to where I've actually stopped applying for some tags. Like I don't put in for Wyoming sheep anymore. I don't put in for, no, there's a bunch of them I've cut out and really narrowed my focus on the, I'm trying to avoid what you said. And I hope people didn't miss it. There's a lot of stress when you draw these new to you areas, even if it's a highly coveted tag. Unless you have a ton of money and just hire an outfitter to do all the work for you. Exactly. I mean, then, exactly. then you have to make sure you get a good one. So it's like, you know, it's tough. No. So I'm I'm into hunting familiar places or just really good states and um, getting giving those hunts more time versus just kind of being feeling rushed and um that's a lot of said. Now, my hunt, my learning curve was pretty long too, Brent. It was like a probably about a five-year elk hunting learning curve. And what happened for me was, and this is what I want you to talk about. So I would go elk hunting with my dad. I killed one with a rifle pretty easily. We went together in New Mexico, and I finally got an archery bull. And that took about four years between the, the rifle and the bow. But I couldn't get it done so like in Idaho. And it took me another four years to get an elk killed in Idaho. And what I finally realized when I started to kill my, like I, my first Idaho bull was a beautiful herd bull, a seven by seven. He looks like he belongs on your side of the state. He's just, he's got a rosy vibe. I started killing two bulls a year, every year for over a decade in Idaho. You could get two tags at the gas station. Can't do that no more. What I started to realize is I would hunt with my dad and we'd go real hard and call for each other. And then he, he would wear out. Like he would have to take a rest day. And every time he took a rest day, I would go solo and I would t- punch my tag. I'm not saying my dad's a shitty hunter. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I'm a better solo elk hunter. Yeah, well, it adds it. Yeah, because you're always worried about, well, when I hunt with, I got a guy I hunt with all the time. But I'm always trying to get him an elk. <laughs> That's, you know, when we're going, I'm like, cause you know, he's marginal at calling stuff. And I'm like, just let me get, just, you're the point man. You know, I'll tell you what, you, you do this, this, and this, and I'll sit back and try to, you know, work him into you. And so, you know, he's, he's gotten several that way, but, um, but when I'm with him, I've never gotten one, not ever. Cause I'm hoping, well, maybe we want to try to sneak around behind, but that's never happened. <laughs> so but then when he gets tagged out or something, or he's not, I'm not with him is when I always get a Roosevelt, always. I mean, it's like I'm always in them, or I get a chance at one. Um, last year, I had my best Roosevelt year ever, and I didn't get one. I had four great opportunities, and it just didn't work out, which was like by far my best on public ground in Oregon. Usually, you work all, we joke about it, but it's true. You, you bust your butt all season for maybe one shot. <laughs> and that's how Valkyrie came about, because it happened to me three years in a row where, you know, you work, you know, you hunt for three weeks, you finally get an opportunity, you hit them a little far forward, and then it doesn't go in the tree. It just go, makes that cracking noise. It goes in two inches and the arrow falls out. And uh, after the third one, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. 
I'm like, I work too freaking hard. I train all year. I practice, I research, I do all this scouting. You know, I shoot my bow every day to miss by a couple inches and have it be a complete failure was just not acceptable to me anymore. And I'm like, there's like, we put in too much time and money. And I, at that time, and we might have talked about this in the show, I didn't care how much it cost. Because if you add up everything that you spend to get to that point, it's a just a drop in the bucket. And so I just I started out with, with the broadhead and stuff. And then um, needed one that'll go through the shoulder, you know, if I hit or the elbow. I had a coveted tag in, Mon- in not Montana, in Oregon, in the uh, the Wanaha unit, which everybody, I mean, everybody, that's what everybody tries to get. 12 yards, quartering away. I just got to hit the sh- elbow. Didn't go in. I mean, I missed by <laughs> two inches or an inch. Hit the elbow, didn't go in. This stuff goes in like uh, all the way. It'll come out the other side. And if I'd have had, well, there's like there's countless stories that I would have gotten the elk if I'd have had this arrow set up and this broadhead. But I, you know, I was just using store bought stuff, even though I was doing all the research and trying all the best stuff. Um, but it's all you know store bought type stuff. And there just wasn't, I'm like, I need something better. And so, you know, that's how it happened. I mean, that's pretty much how Valkyrie came about was I was building this for me. And, and um, then like, you know, guys I was hunting with were like, well, can we get some? And it just kind of snowballed. And we were around way before the website for probably five years, just selling word of mouth. And then um, wouldn't even call Valkyrie back then. But um, and then, you know, eventually it kind of blossomed, you know, and it started out, it was like, I got frustrated trying to, conjure up but I've, I've told this story before but i was in the garage one year and my wife used to get on me too because she said i thought you said last year you had the ultimate arrow set up and i was like you know 10 years later she's like what do you do i thought last year was your best and i'm like well you know i think this will be a little bit better and you know I reread well i went into the ashby stuff like 10 years before i actually took it seriously because i in the wanaha i missed a bull i was just going with weight forward stuff and a single bevel two blade, thirty-five yard shot, and, and he was like, a, he was a good one. He's the biggest bull I saw. He was like three seventy, and I thought I drilled him, and he ran off. And my buddy found my arrow stuck in a stump, nothing on it. And I'm like, how? I went under him, and I did because I was doing like a two hundred fifty grain head, you know, going like the full Ashby setup and all that stuff. But it just went out there and just dropped like a rock. Well, I didn't adjust the fletch. I just put the heavy stuff on the front end of my arrow instead of working the whole system like we do now. But um, so I don't, I dropped that. I'm like, nah, okay, that FOC stuff doesn't work. If the heavy heads drop like a rock, we're not going to, which I now know is totally not true. But, um, and I abandoned it and just went back to normal arrow setups and had some decent success. And then um, I had a couple things that happened and I witnessed some stuff with the standard stuff for like the next, I don't know, maybe 10 years where you're hitting them perfect with a, you know, I used to use Montex for a long time when they first came out. I'm like, Oh God, finally a solid blade, you know, this and that. And like my first seven deer I got with that, I thought they were like the greatest thing on the planet. And then, um, and I was using heavy arrows, but no zero FOC, like 12% or 10% or something. And then um, I lost a giant blacktail buck from five yards, just right below me, hit him perfect. And 
passed through, stuck in the ground. He ran off, never found him. And then, um, then I'm sitting there trying to analyze, like, what could have possibly happened, right? I was right, I saw it right in front of me, go right through him. Well, the only thing I could think of was, because I jumped him in an hour later, that I jumped him four hours later, and we never found him. again. But the only thing I could think of was, I'm like, there's no way I could have gotten the chest cavity. Because if I would have got that, I would have got something. I mean, there's no way he could have made it overnight. And um, the only thing I think I could think of was with that short, steep angle broadhead, that low FOC, you're pushing from the back, it must have hit the edge of a rib and glanced off and went in between the rib and the shoulder blade, you know, buried in the ground. Like, I mean, got the pass through of a heavy arrow. But I was like, we got to fix that. I mean, there's, I got to try to fix that. And then I saw my buddy shoot a elk uh earlier in that year with a maxima red montec quartering away perfect 35 yards i'm 100 yards back just watching this elk's raking a tree we're over in the brakes and uh he shoots him perfect you know right like right at the last rib when we they'll goes like 15 yards and piles up so when we're when we're doing uh cutting them up we roll them over i'm trying to find the exit wound i'm like dude there's no there's no exit wound. it should be near his front shoulder the exit wound was on the opposite side right in front of his hip right below the spine that arrow did a 90 degree from a perfect broadside or not perfectly quartering away shot it went and i was i told him i said that's man there's something wrong that's not right <laughs> your arrow should not do a 90 on a perfect shot you know again it was a short steep angle broadhead no FOC. And so after that, and then that buck I lost, I'm like, you know what, maybe I'll go back and look at that Ashby stuff again and try to pick stuff out of there that's going to help us, you know, have that not happen. And because uh, on the perfect broadside shots, that's that's all I'd had for the seven animals prior to that. And I was like, you know, I just thought I had the, I had the setup. I mean, this stuff's I'm dialed until that happened. And I sent all those up like called my guide buddy up in Canada. He loved those things. I'm like, Hey, if you, I got two dozen hand honed, if you want them, he's like, send them up. I'm like, okay, well, this is what happened. He's like, ah, that's fine. Send them. And, uh, anyway, so that's when I started looking at single bevel two blades and stuff. And then with the longer cutting and, uh, anyway, long story short, uh, when we tested this three blade design, we we dropped all the single bevel two blade stuff because you're getting everything that those have with three blades um, in a nutshell. Because I a lot of times with the single bevels, the two blades, wished I had a third blade, but I didn't want to forfeit the heavy bone breach or the penetration. And but with the Jagger broadhead design, there's virtually no difference, and you have three blade cutting. So I mean that's that's when because I have I had the head all drawn up and everything that we're going to do is right before Cutthroat came out. And it was very similar to the cutthroat, but a little bit, there was some things on it that were a little bit better, but um, we just, I shelved it because I'm like, there, there's no need. We get questions all the time. Are you, if I were ever going to come out with one, I'm like, that we don't, that, why would we sacrifice three blades? You're not gaining anything by going to two. Hey guys, this podcast is brought to you by hard work. That's right. I can't do it for you. Only you can do it for you. And that's what we are selling. I hope you're buying we're also brought to you by Matthews Archery, Vortex Optics, Onyx Hunt, Numa Outdoors, Kufaru International, MagView, Wilderness Athlete, Buck Knives USA, Crispy Hunting, Stealth Cam, Marsupial, Baku E-Bikes, 
Black Elvis. And we have some discount codes to help you save some loot. Eurooptic.com. For anything for Vortex, use the discount code ELK10 to save 10% off. If you're looking for swag, go to Vortex Wear. Enter the discount code ELKSHAPE and save 20%. Elite membership with OnX. Enter the discount code ELKSHAPE, 20% off. NUMA Outdoors, 20% off. The code is ELKSHAPE20. For Kufaru, it's ELKSHAPE15. Exclusions are shelters. MAGVIEW, discount code ELKSHAPE10% off. Wilderness Athlete, 20% off. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE23. For Stealth Cam Non-Sell, discount code ELKSHAPE20 will get you 20% off. And for Cellular, use the discount code ELKSHAPE10 to take 10% off. If you're in the market for a Baku e-bike, discount code ELKSHAPE will take $300 off. And where I shop for all my gear is blackobus.com. Enter the discount code ELKSHAPE for 10% off. Sheep Feet, the discount code is ELKSHAPE for 10% off. Fatty Meat Sticks, discount code ELKHUNTER. For 10% off. Alien Holsters, discount code ELKSHAPE10 for 10% off. Crossover Symmetry, discount code ELKSHAPE for 20% off. And Canvas Cutter, finally, discount code ELKSHAPE will take 10% off. Back to the show. You know, that's interesting that you say that. So you have a similar um, kind of background as Iron Will Bill from Iron Will Outfitters. Is he, he stuck a bull in the shoulder. He was a Midwest whitetail hunter, new to hunting out west. Like any badass, all or nothing bow hunter, which a lot of us are, myself included, he's like, that's it. I, there's got to be a better way. And so I hate to, uh, oh, I guess, no, I don't hate. I love saying that I like a three blade. All in all, I want a triangle. I love a triangle hole on a big old elk. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, yours included, but Dr. Ashby and, and all you guys behind him, I respect what he did, but I don't think he ever did a study on shooting elk with a bow and arrow. Am I wrong? I don't think so, but I will tell you this. He he didn't have this broadhead. Now You we're can run this same broadhead with this cutting diameter and this length in a straight edge. You could try it through a half inch or three-quarter plywood. Will not go through. Talk you change the blade shape to this, it blows right through. So, and that was when, once we started doing that and the accuracy factor, you have less surface area to blow around in the wind than the straight edge, even on the long ones like the VPAs or the wood, the wet, the woodsman's. Anyway, does it even compare on penetration just by changing that blade shape? And this blade shape's not random. This stuff in the front is a three to one, two blade. This yeah, I can tell. Advantage. So, cause I, you know, I didn't want to sacrifice the heavy bone breach penetration. That's the whole reason we're doing, I built the head was to get through heavy bones and, um, and ribs not included, but, and also the blade shape doesn't really glance off anything. Like if you hit the edge of a rib with that, if wherever the tip hits is where it's going in. And if anything on steep angles, if anything, it will go more into the body than away from it. So, um, we found, I, and like I say, all this stuff from trial and error, and having, when I built everything, it was my open-minded, don't care what it is, just has to be the most accurate and lethal arrow combo I can have. Because, and I don't, a lot of guys talk about shot placement. Yep, that's important. But you cannot guarantee shot placement on anything ever. So, relatively, we talk about that. It's still... If scientifically speaking, shot placement would be considered random because you have no idea what's going to happen. And so I'm like, we need the most accurate arrow with the most lethal setup in the widest variety of circum of hunting circumstances. And so, because we're not shooting paper, you know, we're not we're not a completely different animal. Most of the time, 
you're under duress of some sort. I mean, like I don't, I've never really been comfortable shooting at an animal. I'm either freezing, cramping, something. <laughs> it's like, you know, your knees are killing you. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, it's like, dude, you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. Oh, so guys, even when I'm practicing in the summer, I take my wor- my worst day is pro- was what you have to gauge. That's your hunting range, because nothing is ever perfect. <laughs> I mean, because this is one of the reasons why it took me so long to get an elk when I was first starting out, because I'd read all the books and the magazines. Okay, so you have to have a broadside shot or quartering away. You know, they have to be calm, and you know, you have to. It has to be within your range and uh, uh, clear of obstructions, which is great. It's ideal. But then I went hunting with a guy down in. I told you I hunted all the time. I was pig hunting in California with a guy. His name was Brian Morris, and. Uh, we're pig hunt, hunting pigs. We've got recurves. He's across the draw for me, and these pigs start coming out. He starts just swinging arrows through these pigs, through sagebrush and stuff. And I'm like, well, he's like, I'm like, dude, man, you're just slinging at those hogs? <laughs> he's like, dude, and this goes against the grain a little bit, but we're shooting pigs. So, I mean, they're kind of, he's like, dude, nothing flying, nothing dying. And I'm like, <laughs> well, you got, but I'm like, I know, but come on. He's like, dude, you have to shoot if you want to kill anything. Because I passed on so much, so much stuff, waiting for that perfect opportunity. And finally, I had some opportunities that was get, you know, pretty perfect. There might have been something a little out of the perfect equation, and I got him. And then I started shooting more and more stuff. And not, another advantage of shooting this stuff is, and that this is probably that's why I don't do the chat rooms or anything. Cause guys will come on there, but this is all, I'm, this is like bow hunting experience and anyone you talk to that gets a lot of stuff. I mean, how many, how much stuff is they, have they shot perfectly broadside and wide open? <laughs> I mean, that almost to me for, at least for me, it almost never happens. There's always something going on. Yep. And uh, so the guys that write the books and the magazine articles and stuff, you know, they once in a while they get stuff, but the guys that really actually, or hunters and yeah, but you know, you have to know your limitations, but, but you know, and that's one of the reasons why the Valkyrie stuff opens up more shot opportunities for you. So especially the whole system, the broadhead and the weight forward design allows you to, you can shoot through a little bit of grass or light brush or the ends of sagebrush, not through the middle, but um, with the, you know, once you hit that 18 to 20%, foc stuff because the head and i tested it with the broadheads with dull broadheads four months i used to have a 3d course in my old place and i would shoot at through the ends of fur bells scotch broom all that stuff and the arrow might get bumped off course a little bit but it always kept going the same direction i'm not talking like a half inch dried branch of a pine tree but i mean the green stuff the little you know the light stuff and so and and in the wind and everything, I mean, it's just a much more accurate projectile. That I mean, the way it's designed, the whole system's designed is to be way more accurate in the wind, through a little bit of brush. Even the stuff you can't see, I I nicked a giant five by five Roosevelt, eighteen yards, shooting through a basketball size hole in in the huckleberries. Mm-hmm. There were two little wire brand. I thought it was wide open because I couldn't see these little tiny wire sized huckleberry branches shooting low foc heavy arrow montex uh-huh. no i was shooting the different head anyway 
I hit it, it was about five feet in front of him. And all that was in the hole was his vitals. <laughs> it nicked there and in five yards, it ricocheted three feet and nicked him in the neck, just top of the neck hair. And if I would have had this stuff, it would even those little wire branches, these things wouldn't have changed course. It would just, I would have got them. I mean, that's, and that was a big, that was a good one. That one hurt. <laughs> Yo, well, I think, Brent, you've laid a good foundation for a couple things. You have blood on your hands. You're an experienced elk killer. This is the Elk Shape Podcast, man. You have reps, lots of shots. You have heartache, heartbreak, all those things that make me want to listen to your narrative. So I want to break down your broadheads with the video a little bit because you do subscribe to a four mil 0.166 inside diameter. You like those arrows. I do too. And you have a system that is arguably one of the best options for those type of arrows. So you want to hold an arrow up and kind of walk us through the shank, everything, the jagger, whatever you want to show. Well, yeah, and I would, I'll even talk about why I chose the, the four-wheel shaft. So the reason why is because you the stiffness, the weight ratio. So I can get a stiffer arrow with a lighter grains per inch. So, and then the first time I tried it, because I was always, I mean, I was like a lot of you guys, I'm tinkering. I used to tinker year round. And so, and so one year, back when Victory came out with their VAPS, I don't know how many years ago that was. But I was just working on the the, uh, the Jagger broadhead prototypes, and then I was trying to test them, but I couldn't. I was shooting like bones and concrete and steel plates and stuff just to get a relative toughness, and and I couldn't use the con. I had to use recurve bows, like forty and fifty pound long bows, actually, to test the relative strength of the broadhead. Cause I didn't want to blow things. They caught my prototypes cost me too much money. <laughs> so, right. Exactly. There I tell guys all the time when I was building these for myself, I paid $85 a piece for one of these. That's just to get it machined. Then I had to sharpen it and all that stuff. But anyway, um, so I ended up, so I was trying to test the broadhead cause originally I just was, I just needed, I just wanted a better broadhead. I hadn't grasped the full concept of everything yet. Then trying to test the broadhead, I started having to, I bought gold tip hunters because they were cheap and I could break them. And they're pretty dang strong. I mean, they're really hard, really hard to break, at least back then. But they would still bend and break because they had that short little aluminum, super soft aluminum, tiny insert in there. And so, and then the broadhead, nothing ever happened to the broadhead, even on the steel plates. It'd just be sitting there like that. And the arrow would be mangled and mushroomed and just totally toast. And so I started building, and I don't know if anyone's listening out there and they want to do it. So I built, I took that same design of the gold tip insert, doubled its length, and changed the aluminum to 70-75. So those cost me about $350 a piece to have machined. So I built those, then I built collars that would go over the end of the gold tip hunter that were about an inch long. Because I needed that thing to stay together so that I wanted to try to... I needed that broadhead to fail. So um, anyway, so that got pretty tough, but then I didn't like, once I put the collar on there and that 516th shaft, you, you start getting, your diameter starts growing and trying to push diameter through stuff is massive friction, massive resistance. And that's one of the reasons on the Grizzly, the original Grizzly sticks, man, those things are like three eighths of an inch. 
I mean, if you don't get stuff blown open, that's a, the shaft drag, even though it's tapered, the shaft drag is tremendous, especially on an animal when it's moving, when it's it. That's when shaft drag becomes massively important. With the micros, that this is it. This that's about as small as you can get. Minimal shaft drag. Um, we're gonna loop start losing some guys here, but the widest point of our whole system is five sixteenths of an inch, and it's only at the very back of the broadhead. The back ferrule is about five sixteenths, slightly under, and then for about a quarter inch on the front of the sleeve is five sixteenths of an inch. That's the widest. That is the largest port diameter of this entire arrow that's it so shaft drags minimal super important and shooting in the wind and also hitting or probably heavy tissue and animals that are moving and i like a lot of guys that want to test my stuff they're doing broadhead tests and stuff like that i go what you need to show and no one has shown yet on a broadhead test is throw put something up there that you can even do gel or whatever which is not representative in my opinion of an animal but, um, you know, put the piece of steak on there with the bone, back it up with something, so like some sort of whatever, gel or whatever, and then right before the arrow hits it, drop it so that it hits when it drops. Then check FOC penetration versus standard. High FOC will crush that every time. Every time. It's not even close. And that's what happens, like when animals are moving or ducking or something like that. If you're shooting a low FOC arrow, this arrow, you can see me there, this arrow is pushing from back here. And so once you get that head knocked off course, this arrow is still pushing from back here. Now it starts to banana out, especially with the short, steep angle broadhead. With, our, with the high FOC, 18 plus percent, this front end is pulling the head. So even though it may get knocked off course, it's going to keep pulling that shaft of spaghetti noodle back through and go through. Even in high winds, guys do it. Like, we won't get any penetration in high wind because the arrow will be flagging sideways. But as soon as that head hits where it's going, it yanks the back end through. And that's one of the reasons why you want a low, FOS, low grains per inch arrow. This needs to be as light as possible so that even in high winds, when this is pulling, it doesn't take all this. It's not going to sap all this energy out just trying to yank this heavy shit back end through. And that's what it's hard to. I mean, you'd have to visualize it, but I mean, that's actually what happens. Even in high winds, when your arrow is like 45 degrees, as soon as it hits the animal, it, it straightens out and goes boom, right through them. So, just I just posted a guy shot an out in Texas, said it was just ripping wind 61 yards, and he just didn't even move his pin, just put his pin on it. Arrow was flagging sideways, just poop right through him. I was just um, hanging out with Dan Evans last week, and he was showing me one of your heads that he was going to probably, I can't guarantee it, but he's considering using this year. And it, uh, did he say mini jag? I'm not sure what he said. It was a jag, yeah. We, we made that head because Dan thought we would sell more if we knocked the front section off a little bit. And so, oh, okay. Yeah, you no, know, he's been shooting our heads for, he mixed it up a little bit last year, but for like the last four years. Okay. He hasn't shot anything. <laughs> yeah. He always just said post videos of like a 350 bull. Not quite what I'm looking for. <laughs> Shoot that thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole nother podcast in itself. But yeah. Yeah, he's he's pretty he's pretty awesome. But yeah, he, he liked our stuff as soon as he saw it. But um, yes, because our, our short jag is like his shuttle T just jacked up on steroids. I mean God, that was a good broadhead. 
that in fact his and I told Dan the first time I met him I said when people couldn't afford the Valkyrie system or thought they couldn't afford it I told him, okay okay the bet the next best solution is to use a lightweight 204 diameter shaft which I still recommend to guys this day I mean they could shoot this if they want if you want to make something else or you already have some lighter weight 204 shafts which are like the axis axis L uh not the LR but just the Eastern axis or the Black Eagle Rampage, which are pretty, they're about, they're lighter than our shafts, but you cannot use a half out on those because they're too brittle. But if you run the uh, hidden insert with a sleeve on it, it's pretty, I told you guys, that's the second best thing to the center pin system. Hidden insert with a sleeve is what we used like 15 years ago before the center pin system. And now everyone's like, oh my God, that's all new stuff. I'm like, and then I thought it was new. And then I called my buddy, uh, Dwayne Jessup, that helped me design this broadhead. Um, when I first came up with the sleeve thing on the hidden insert, because it's a great design. But the only thing that Easton didn't do was give you the sleeve. <laughs> if they had given you the sleeve, they'd have probably sold half the arrows they did. Because, they, you know, there's a pretty bomb-proof front end. And I called I called them up, and I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I did this on here. We're so... I mean, it's like super tough. It's really hard to break. He's like, he goes, we've been doing that for like 30 years. <laughs> I was like, but you know, there's, even though you think of something new, usually someone's already been doing it. Every time I talk to him, his name is Dwayne Jessup out of Montana. He's in, had, he's like the mastermind of so many things in archery that he doesn't take any credit for. And if really? they, like they used to test these broadheads, they tested the original Jagger. It was called a Martin Penetrator. It was a really, it was an old, super old style design with like copper braised titty, but it was pretty much that thin tin stuff that they used on the old bear razor head type stuff. Hunter grains. And, uh, and they, anyway, they were using that. And that's how, cause he told me we we're going to go all in with, I'm, I'm rambling, but uh, we we're going to go all in with that single bevel two blade until he says, Hey, hold on. You might want to check these out. And he sent me one. And I, with a, after we tested it, I'm like, God, if we modernize that thing and just machined it out of tool steel and he treated it, I mean, it would be something. Because he said, he would, back then he had an archery shop and he goes, Brad, I know of at least a thousand elk that have been shot with this broadhead and not one of them's ever failed. It was a hundred grain glue on. <laughs> so it's like, no way. He goes, yeah, way. And then he goes, and they shatter bones like crazy. Even guys using 50 pound longbows are shattering with femurs and elk. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. And so then we started taking a harder look at it and doing some testing. And the testing was awesome. But then even the first year, we had some guys shooting, the guy from Elk Addicts um, and a couple other guys, because I can't, I don't, now that I have this stuff, I don't hunt quite as much. So I get was getting feedback from a lot of guys. I go, I need to know what happened. Like my first question was, you get any bones? <laughs> you know? And uh but yeah, elk addicts guy. He those guys were shooting elk, like getting them in the front shoulder, kind of quartering two, breaking the shoulder, going out, breaking femurs, going out the backside. And that first year, we had several with the same story, and I was like, "That's way better than I even imagined." You know, shooting like and just seventy pound compound with the normal four about a four hundred eighty grain arrow with about nineteen percent FOC. So okay, it's outrageous. You know, as heaviness instead. Two things, Brent. I want to talk about first one, and you've you've kind of hinted at this, and so I gotta like 
spell it out for the listeners. If you hunt solo, you, you might have more success. Doesn't guarantee it, but I certainly stand behind that. Number two, if you vocalize and you're solo, you may have shot opportunities that are few and far between. And the ones that do materialize may not be ideal. And your current setup may be setting you up for heartbreak that both Dan and Brent have experienced. So if you want to ensure penetration and not take away that quartering two shot on an elk, or I hate to say it, but frontal or whatever, or quartering away, best practices for the Valkyrie system. Let's distill it down. You've already said a four mil arrow makes a lot of sense to me, not only fighting wind drift, but the lighter GPI, the stiffness. And then you have the pin system, which is undeniable with the four mil. And then you have that three to one ratio. Let's just distill your best practices and go over all the offerings that you have. Okay. So first of all, when guys think of a 200 grain or 180 grain broadhead, the reason why we do the light grain sprint shaft, we, we, because there's lighter ones out there, but we have to maintain structural integrity. We're not shooting targets because I can go in it. But anyway, this to distill it down and not tell you all the whys <laughs> is that you need a moderately heavy wall. You need the center pin system because this has the footing. The pit, I'll just show it to you, or that people can see this. Right? So this shaft goes down and is flush inside. So you have a footing that goes clear back to right there, okay? Sleeve covers the outside of the shaft so you have no mushrooming. It goes over about three quarters of an inch. So now you have the sleeves, this glues on permanent. It's like an outsert, glues right on. Broadhead, there, and there's rubber bushings that we have on the ones you get. There's none on this one because this one's not even sharpened yet. But those rubber bushings slide down inside. The whole shaft is pretty much flush on the inside. Then this screws on. Everything we have is screw on. That locks in with the fine thread because we don't want the heads rattling loose. And also where that the back of that pin is right here, there's the first thing that, that the rubber bushings are touching the shaft. So if you do get a deflection, a heavy impact, oblique impact, it's going to try to snap your head right behind the insert like happens on all the outserts. Doesn't matter which ones you use. There's a pin inside here that goes clear back to right here. The first thing that hits that shaft is the rubber bushings. They cushion that shock. And that cushioning that shock kind of transfers the energy back here. And even at 3D shoots and stuff, when you do hit rocks or glancing blows off of pipes and stuff, most of the time the shaft breaks back in the middle. The front end is still intact and straight. And so, because we want to design zero impact failure on heavy bones. So, this bomb proof pretty much. And with the rubber bushings in here and the fine threads, your heads throughout, you know, if you're hunting, if, especially like spot and stock mule deer, this has happened to me. You're cha you're, they get up, they move. Eight hours later, you've taken your, you've been close, had your arrow out of your quiver about freaking five times. Well, then if you're using standard threads and you don't have a Loctite or something on it, or even if you do, all of a sudden your head starts coming loose. <laughs> and then anyway, after eight hours, I missed an easy shot by missing them with a rattling broadhead. When guys go to your website, you can order test kits. You can order just the broadheads. You can order the sitter pin sleeve and glue. 
I guess, break down your website and how to do the best shopping experience for my crowd, which is a bunch of ABT, always be tinkering, trying to get the most perfect setup just like you. Okay, so this setup, if for all the tinkers out there, this way, because I talk to them all the time, because they're always online looking around, they, even they don't see it somewhere. I'm like, so I was a tinker for decades. The, the reason why I decided to come out with this was because I got tired of tinkering with marginal products. Like always using other people's stuff, gluing or doing the mini all threads, grinding one collar off of an insert, screwing it onto the other insert so I get a long <laughs> insert. And then that was, that was the day when I was doing the gold tip inserts. That first one to get it all squared and lined up took me like a half an hour. And I had 11 more to do. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't. I go, I can't keep doing this. And so that's when I designed it. Anyway, I started designing. But um, after all your tinkering and testing, I tell guys all the time, this, if you know, you're completely open and honest with your shooting, your penetration, the accuracy, this is where you end up. This is where you're going to end up. This lightweight, stiff shaft, low shaft drag, super bomb-proof front end, like the strongest in the industry, and one of the best, I don't know, if not the best broadheads, because if I tell, I all I say guys all the time, if there was a better one, we make it. If there was a better arrow system, I would make it. This is what I take in the woods because I value it so much that I want the best possible arrow in the widest variety of circumstances for accuracy and lethality. If I get it close, I want to get them. So, and I want to be able to get my arrow there, even if there's a, those little huckleberry branches like I talked about that I can't see. If I hit those, I still get them. So my arrow doesn't go three feet off. And that's, I mean, everybody, I, I talk to everybody, shows all the time to people, um, hit them in the shoulder, even on deer. Um, arrow doesn't go in. I'm like, yeah, here you go. This fixes that. Or, yeah, I hit this, I didn't see this branch and I hit it, you know, it was a little, little tiny twig branch. My arrow completely changed directions with this arrow system with the weight forward which is an important component of keeping that arrow going straight um, these might get bumped off a little bit but the head keeps it driving towards the target and then that's why we have the test kits because and that's why i wanted you guys to shoot it first so you can see it firsthand before we talk about it because even the flight of the arrow looks different in flight even if you're just shooting in like a calm either calm or a light wind it's almost like you can see the head kind of driving towards the bullseye. Um, and, okay, I used to love standing behind the guys when they come over 70, 80 yards. You got a slight crosswind, and that arrow would be flagging sideways, waving a little bit, right in there. And so, and the penetration is phenomenal. But um, so that's what you get with Valkyrie. And you can buy the test kit so that, and you 30 days trial, you have to pay up front $49.95 plus shipping shoot the stuff for 30 days. Cause most guys have probably never even shot a 200 grain head or even, you know, thought about it. And I tell one of the first things we used to do to not, so guys can see for themselves. Cause a lot of guys, when I first tell them about it, they're like, Oh yeah, whatever. So the first thing they could do when the guys would come over, we take their hundred grain head off their arrow, screw a 200 grain head on their setup, go out to 40 yards. And I tell them, put the pin on the bullseye. And Every single guy would almost miss the target high 
And they're like, whoa. I'm like, you didn't put your pin on the bullseye. They're, well, no, I was put it like kind of over the target a little bit because I didn't want to miss, you know, I didn't want to wreck my arrow. And uh, one of the things I wish I had your video capability because we should have videoed that because we did that with everybody. Just put that on there just to give them confidence. Like, look, these arrows just we're adding 100 grains to your arrow. And it's only dropping like two inches off your other your other one at 40. They're like, and everybody's like, no way. <laughs> yeah, that's what I had to do it so you could see it and have confidence in it. So because then even with the with the 200 grain head or whatever, we use a lot of one, 180s and 200s probably are most popular. But the overall arrow weights are not extreme. They're moderate compared, you know, they're anywhere from depends on your draw length and stuff, but most of our setups, 80% of our arrow setups for guys shooting 70 pounds, depending on your draw length, is like 475 to 525. And then 525, you can go up to almost 80 pounds and still hit the FOC threshold. You have the strength threshold. And then the other thing we try to maintain is a feet per second of 270 or higher. And that we found through trial and error also. So we bring guys, we walk them back, shooting far, keep adding head weight, all, all above the 18% FOC threshold. But we keep, because the more you can shoot, the higher the FOC, the better if you can still maintain accuracy and stuff, but there's kind of a balance in there because you want to out, especially out here, you need range. You have to be able to shoot far. And, uh, but the mat, the more FOC you can get the better. And so that's why we have the test kit with three different head weights and you walk it back. And so I'm getting back to the arrow drop and the speed. So in the first couple months, we never brought out the chronograph. We just walk it back until you all of a sudden you start falling off the table after 50. Then we back it up to the next lightest head where you had a nice smooth arc out to 70. And then after a couple months, I'm like, yeah, all right. And everyone was the same. Like, that's manageable. That's not bad. And I'm like, yes, that's good speed. And then um, we brought out the chrono and it's freaking right at 270. And so that's where we hit. And But we also incorporate the lower profile. We four-fletch four with four low profile. We use the AE Pro Max and the heat vane. Um, because the, that this drag back here creates can create a lot of friction, like blazer veins. When you shoot the same stuff with blazer veins, forty-five or fifty yards, they they start throwing on the brakes, and you know, and so we try to, but you still need that control. And that's where the four lows come in, so you can still control the fixed blades, but have less drag down range. So and that's one of the things when we built this. We adhered to like the 12 factors of the ultimate hunting arrow from Ashby, except for we modernized it by lowering the heavy bone breach threshold. And that starts with how, when we designed the tip all the way, <laughs> like every, the FOC, the structural integrity, you know, there's no bending or breaking up here, up front, no breaking, no bending in here. And then we have the weight forward pulling through zero shaft friction practically um that's you know most time if you hit an animal squared up the arrow just goes through them like paper even if you go through ribs and uh and then you know low drag so that even though your arrow can be heavier low drag in the back end it will still stay up longer and your heavier arrow won't slow down as fast at extended ranges so it's funny with so when we take guys they'll shoot their arrow they've got their gold tip hunter blazer veins hunter grain tip weighs like 50 grains lighter. They'll be way flatter out to about 45 or 50. Then all of a sudden their arrow starts dropping and then this one starts not dropping. 
<laughs> it's coming out slower, but yeah, it's only about a 10 yard, like they just move, just take their next 10 yard pin and they can work almost the same trajectory until you get further. And then you'll, we, I have to use the, a faster tape from 50 plus slower tape under 50 faster tape over 50 because it just yeah. has the friction to slow it down as much as the standard arrow that's a lot to take in <laughs> here's where i want to finish brent and honestly i think you're a wealth of knowledge and i think this listen is a good one and i think there's newer archers that may want to re-listen as come back to this episode once you've gone down the rabbit holes because you will get sucked into rabbit holes. And you'll see that Brent is speaking in truth. I can vouch for you as a seasoned elk hunter and a gold star tinkerer. You're not wrong. You're really talking about some amazing concepts. But I want to finish with this, Brent. How the hell do you sharpen your broadheads? What's the best practices? The best is a sharpening wheel kit, which we're out of right now. So so on the sh- this is the, the I wanted to factor that in too, because I hate, even on the single bevel two blades or the double bevel, Pain in the butt. Montex are pretty easy because you just do two blades at once on the stone, just flat stone. You can do that and you can get them pretty sharp. But with these and the Rockwell on our broadheads is so strong that because I wanted to, there's so many things I could talk about, <laughs> but I just wanted this blade after it cuts through hair and hide to still be sharp. And anything from the mid 50s and under in Rockwell is not sharp by the time it gets to the vitals. So and then we had them up 54, 56 with the Blood Eagles. But even though we go through heavy bone and out the other side, they weren't sharp anymore. So we just, we make everything out of the S7, 60 to 61 Rockwell. So it stays sharp all the way through. And most of the time, even if you break shoulders and stuff, they're still shaving hairs. So, and that's why I wanted one to stay sharp all the way through. But um, sharpening, that's another factor I wanted. I hate sharpening. I'm not good at it. And so these are, with the sharpening wheel kits we have, we built, it's like a two inch wide wheel. And I, we have videos online. Even our customers have made videos on YouTube. Just like, dude, this is so easy. And, but the biggest mistake guys make with broadheads, and I used to do it all the time. You have to get the micro burr. You have to get the burr. It has to catch on your nail. If it's sliding on your nail, you got no burr. It's going to catch on your nail one way or the other. And it's not a big old hanging curvy burr. It's just a tiny one. Once you get that, off the grit, off the grit wheel. Then you use, you buff it out or strop it or whatever. And but we use the buffing wheel with that to take that burr off and then find hand hone that wedge. I mean, it's just nasty. You get na- you can get them nasty sharp, and it's super easy. Anyone can do it. I had my good buddy who's a doctor, um, but very not hands on. <laughs> I'm like, here, sharpen this on that wheel. He's like, why do you want me to do it? I'm like, because if you can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> He's like. And so we got it and did it. So, um, oh, that's good. Super, yeah, I want it super easy. We're out of those wheel kits, but also another way to do it. And I had this before even Valkyrie, because um, I was, and I don't know a lot of guys that I, but I think about everything all the time. Back even when I was using the, the two blades, I had those four by 36 inch bench top belt sanders. And I get custom belts from like 120, 220, 400, 600, 800, just because I wanted to have a sharp edge. And so even on the Montex, I would use like 800 or 1,000 to get that thing, that shiny sharp. You don't want it at nasty sharp. And so and you can use the those belt sanders. You can use, because you need a, this concave part you have to use on the spindle. So this will come around. So I take this on the spindle, 
and then keep that on top and then just because our tip is drop pointed for strength then you just roll it up a little bit and you just when the, this is always it's coming here and that that'll just sharpen in here with that stuff coming around two blades at once super easy whatever you do to one side you have to do to all of them because you have to keep that point concentric so but two blades at once uh the four by 36 belt sander i got we use them here like when guys send in broadheads where the they've abused or shot targets for all year they want them resharpened um we use those just with the 120 220 and 400 grit then the buffing wheel mm -hmm. um we actually have three set up in a row um then we can get that edge back with that 120 make sure make sure it's catching on the nail and go to the 220 take all the scratch marks out the 400 gets it a little smoother and then we buff it on the wheel with the white polishing compound and they're back to nasty i mean mm -hmm. from dull and that takes a couple minutes with the belt sander then you can get anywhere the only thing you can't get is the the 120 and 220 i recommend ceramic grit which you can order from amazon yeah and then um, the 400, we use aluminum oxide. Ooh. And so, um, yeah, because they don't make the, because if you use the other stuff, it'll work for like one or two broadheads, but steel soaks um, hard that you're going to go through belts like crazy. Okay. So, I mean, they'll go, you could use it, but your belts will be done in a, a few broadheads. They'll be just butter knives. Your belts will be, I mean, they won't have any grit left to them. And even using the, we use the rubber belt cleaner stuff too all the time, but the ceramics last a long time. Brent Hahn, you are an arrow archery elk hunting broadhead nerd, and I value this last hour with you. Thank you so much for coming on today. Parting advice for all my elk hunter listeners out there from a seasoned veteran OG like yourself. I would say one of the most important thing, well, one of the most important things you can do is the is the arrow is, and you start with the broadhead and work it back um, because that is your only contact you spend all that time and energy like i i have and i do i did the same thing in fishing i mean back when i was a hardcore steelhead guy i always had at first i didn't but then i ended up getting the best line and the best hooks because you know fishing in oregon here is pretty rough on it's like almost like elk hunting you bust your button for one but if you lose that or for, for the dull hook or crappy line or something, it's totally not, it's not worth it. Same thing with your arrow and broadhead. Um, if you're not, that's the only place I would never skimp on elk hunting is the, your arrow setup. Cause that's your only connection. I mean, that, it all boils down to what that can do. Even if you do everything else, right. If that fails, it doesn't matter. So, and it's one of the cheapest things you can do <laughs> for, for elk hunting, especially with the price of fuel and everything. Wow. That's some, that's some wisdom right there, guys. Um, I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to the Valkyrie website. Maybe you need to check out the test kit. And um, if you guys need to reach out, that's all I did. I went to the website and reached out to Brent after meeting him in person, and they got back to me immediately. So remember, especially today, separation is in the preparation. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Guys, Brent is a stud, and man, he's a wealth of knowledge, and he's got so much elk hunting experience. After the podcast, I said, hey, man, why don't you get us a discount code for the listeners in case they want to check out maybe your broadheads or your, your test system? And so he came up with Elk Shape 10. It takes 10% off. He did offer me a commission on that. I declined, so there is no 
nothing. It's just straight 10% for you guys to check it out if you're interested. And I just want to give back to the listeners because I truly appreciate your support. You have a lot of options out there when it comes to podcasts. Thanks for choosing ours. Separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one.